0: Welcome to Live Well, Leave Well, a podcast from Singapore Hospice Council. I'm Sharon Chen, and together with Singapore Hospice Council's Executive Director, Bi Hia, we're going to look at different aspects of palliative care in each episode. The theme for this episode is compassion. At its heart, palliative care is compassionate care. Palliative care aims to relieve pain and suffering, and support patients and their families in their journey with dignity and comfort. Within the palliative care field, care plans, programs and practices are grounded in compassion, fostering an environment where each patient's unique needs and emotional well-being are prioritised with unwavering dedication. Showing kindness to
1: yourself is another component of compassion, During difficult or vulnerable moments, it's this kindness that can help relieve mental and emotional suffering. This self-care can help you continue to do things you enjoy, whether you are a patient or a caregiver. In this episode, we share tips on how
0: to be kind to yourself, even when you are frustrated or upset. Today, we hear from four guests that embodied compassion for someone they cared for or being kind to themselves in their journey as a patient or caregiver. Our first guest is Petrina Kao, a voice, accents and presentation coach. But depending on your age, you might best remember her for morning radio shows that accompanied so many of us on our daily commutes to work.
2: I'm in my 40s, two years ago. I was struggling with COVID, and just like everyone else, (laughs) raising teenagers, busy with work and life, and it wasn't necessarily a struggle. It was just life, right? You're just getting on with it. And the thing I noticed was there was this kind of like constant block nose and I just thought to myself okay la block nose are sinuses whatever so I go in TCM, go and like whatever there's no other symptoms there was no like cough or like cold or anything it's just I cannot breathe through one side right this permanently blocked because I do voiceovers and I do record my voice all the time I noticed I got very breathless when I did long form stuff so when I was recording a, an, an audio book I realised okay I'm breathing not very well and I'm very tired now huh? So then it just started to affect overall things like my sleep and all the rest of it. Someone said to me, Go and see an ENT. By that point, I was emotionally, physically, everything exhausted. When I just thought, I just go and sort this out. There was a very deep knowing. It wasn't right on the surface where I thought, Oh, this might be something. Or it could just even be like luck, right? Where I just thought, okay, I have a friend who's an ENT, I'll just go see her. So I booked an appointment and she immediately scoped me. And I, I had it all on video because I got, because I was so excited to have my larynx videoed because I'm teaching in Los where I'm teaching my students about the larynx and the vocal cords. So I'm like, yay, I get to see my vocal cords. Quick, record this video. And then now very high tech, right? The camera goes into your nose and you can see down in your throat and everything. So I got my husband to record it all. And I play that video back sometimes to hear my doctor go, oh, oh, what's that? What's that? (laughs) And I think from her reaction... I knew it wasn't good because she sent me next door to get a little biopsy of this big thing that was in my nose. And then in a couple of days, we found out that it was stage two nasal pharyngeal cancer. And uh, then it was just a whirlwind after that for two months of just straight up weekly chemotherapy and daily radiation. So it was fast and furious, very short, but it was very intense. At the end of that period, it was climb back to health. And so I'm here (laughs) two years later. How did your children deal with uh, what was happening to their mother? So my kids were 14 and 18, around there. And so it was nice in that the 18-year-old was with me when we got the prognosis. So I heard from the horse's mouth, is reassured that everything's going to be all right. So when they delivered the news to me, she's like, OK, not good news. It's cancer, but... I got a team of great doctors. MPC is very treatable. We hope that, you know, you'll be done and it's good. From just the way the languaging was done, it felt very hopeful that it's going to be tough, but we can do it. So I think from the get-go, everyone felt like, okay, something we can do. It's not like, oh, I'm going to give you six months to live. You know, it's kind of like other stories you've heard of before. My younger boy was not there. And so when we had to talk to him over the phone and he knew that I was going to see the doctor, I think he was quite shocked, but he was also younger then, and so not at that weird age of 14, (laughs) where they're not very expressive. So I think he dealt with it in his own way, but in the last two years, we've done a lot of sort of very open conversations, and I wanted to be very open with them, to take them through everything that I was feeling. They're not like small children where they're unable to understand this, and I leaned on them, especially the older one who was also doing a big exam, doing the IBs. I wanted to involve them as much. And eventually he came and stayed with me in the hospital. And very much, I think life went on as per normal, right? I go home, I try and fix meals for the kids when I had the energy. If not, you all sort yourselves out. <laughs> you, know? you all sort out the laundry yourself, whatever. <laughs> think, yeah.
0: How did your cancer journey change your life? Did it change your view on what's
2: most valuable to you? Oh, absolutely. I don't think anybody can come out of an experience like that not altered in any way. And how are you altered? I think that's very individual. I remember when the journey to recovery was happening, it was almost like a daily discovery of what the body can and cannot do. (laughs) You know, it's like, hey, today I can walk all the way to this part of the bridge. Yay! (laughs) You know, And not collapse. Okay, good. It was this very slow and up and downy kind of journey of very much rediscovering what my body is because it was such a physical experience. My body had gone through such a physical transformation in terms of all the drugs that were introduced to my body and the radiation and the physical burns healing from that healing all the wounds at the back of my throat feeling the muscle tension and having to sort of work back at articulation again feeling the constant dryness in my mouth even just dealing with daily nutrition right what can i eat at this point and is that enough? It was very visceral, very physical experience. The interesting thing was I lost a lot of weight, and so people were like, "My God!" A lot of people who haven't seen me for a long time. They were, "Wow, you look great! You lost a lot of weight. Huh? You look great." So whether or not they knew I had cancer, it was also a very weird thing to hear because I know I haven't been great, and I know I haven't been well. Yet to be told all the time that I look great did I have to go through all that to lose weight and therefore be told this is now when I look great? (laughs) Is that a mark of health and success and wellness? I don't know. I wasn't sure about that. So at this point where I feel more physically well, mentally and emotionally working on my sort of self, I feel like only now I can say, okay, let me work on what feels like I can have control of what wellness is, right? There's no impediment anymore to what I can and cannot eat. There is no more impediment to how I move. I'm daily feeling stronger and I'm eating well. I was such a yao kui person, a very food-motivated person. And clearly food was my crutch. To have that taken away from you in such a stark way to then discovering what you can eat again, to then realizing what is food, And how am I giving myself nutrition was a journey. You know, but I don't think people appreciate how much work and effort and intentionality that goes into being good to yourself or treating yourself with respect. It's like, how do you eat? How do you sleep? What do you think and how to think is all of that. I think that is what is very profoundly changed for me. Petrina's story vividly captures
1: the multitude of changes and challenges inherent in any illness journey. It emphasises the pivotal role of compassion for oneself
0: in moments of frustration and taking each day in one's stride. Our next guest is Mr Muhammad Adri, a senior staff nurse specialising in palliative care at Ng Teng Fong General Hospital.
3: I was inspired initially by the Palliative Care Team when they looked after my grandmother who was sick in An Fong until she passed on uh, in the hospital itself. So with this passion and inspiration, I decided to take up my Advanced Diploma in Palliative Care. And once I'm done with my study, I express interest in joining the team afterwards. My role in the Palliative Care Team is not only to explore physical symptoms, but also to identify any psychological and social distress that my patient will go through. It is basically just understanding what is important to them and their views of the current illness and medical treatment as well. And on top of that, I also want to understand if there's any concern issue that caregivers and family members might have when caring for patients or going through this tough journey. Example, with their grieving and how are they accepting with all this. This will also help us plan a discharge much better for the patient and also for the caregivers as well. We work hand in hand and closely with our medical social worker, physiotherapist, occupational therapist and also our community services colleagues like our home hospice team. This is to provide support to patient and family member in the hospital and also at home when they decide to go home.
0: In your line of work, what encompasses compassionate care and how is this different compared to other medical specialties?
3: In palliative care, we always emphasise on looking at patients not only at their physical symptoms but also their psychological, social issues that they might have. So during my studies, we have a lot of emphasis in developing the skills of communication and how do we approach such difficult topics to discuss with our patients and family members. We also have to listen to our caregivers and family members as well to explore any of their fears, concerns, opinions and views of patient current condition and their treatment plan and the plans are moving forward as well. We can understand what is important to them at this juncture of life and understand why they make certain decisions.
0: To what extent has compassion been integral in establishing connection and rapport with your patients and their families?
3: I spend a lot of my time listening to my patients and also family members and caregivers. Sometimes all they need is just a listening ear to express their concern, fears, worries and opinion as well. So understanding all this will help us to provide appropriate support and help to guide them through this tough journey as well. For family members and patients who have difficulty in accepting current situation and events, we will slowly try to ease the family into the acceptance and guiding them through the challenges that they are facing to make the process a lot smoother and easier for them. We hope that we will develop that trust between the healthcare provider, patient and family members as well, to continue to provide reassurance and ensure that they feel supported throughout the whole journey.
0: Has your understanding of compassion evolved over your career?
3: When I started nursing, we always find it easier to label patients and family members, they are being difficult or stubborn in certain situations. But as the time goes by, you realise that how people react and cope to different news Different bad news or different stressful situation Is different from one another And also that they grieve differently And react differently to losses Some patient who loses their independence Or family losing their loved one They will act differently based on it I think one of the important thing in our line of work Is not to easily just label or judge patient and family members But to understand how what is their views and feelings at that current situation so that we can understand why they act or make certain decisions.
0: Singaporeans are known to struggle with talking to someone with life-limiting illness, worrying that they might say the wrong things, which could lead to hurtful disagreements. Now, what advice can you share about approaching end-of-life conversations with compassion?
3: It is true that End-of-life conversation is not common in a household. We don't talk about it very openly to our loved one. We often see patients and caregivers have different views on different situations. It can be as simple as whether to bring patient back to the hospital. Some patient might not want it, some family members still insist on it, and it might cause a lot of tension as well. Other example would be, let's say, where some patients feel like going through some active treatment, like chemotherapy, is a form of suffering but some family members still feel like it is beneficial for the patient. So all this can cause a lot of tension between family and patient as well. So it's not very easy for family members to decide. Sometimes when patient is unable to speak for themselves when they become unconscious, so they cannot have an open discussion when all this situation happens. So when they want to make certain decisions, they might feel a bit lost and guilty. In my opinion, it's always good to talk about this life and death, end of life conversation with our loved one. It's also important to talk about it when we are still healthy. We will be more understanding of one another to see what is important to us in life and how we want to approach our medical treatment in case we have any life-limiting illness. For patients who have life-limiting illness, I think it's more towards understanding of how they feel and what is their experience going through the treatment journey. Sadly, there's no way to sugarcoat the topic of life-limiting illness. Having an open conversation about it will help us to understand each other better. Patients will have their say on what is important to them and how they want their treatment plan to be sorted out. And it also helped to give the caregiver the confidence and to guide them to make decisions when their loved one could not do it anymore. End-of-life conversation should not be a one-time thing. I think it should be regularly follow-up between one another so that we can see whether there's any changes to our priority and also views. We as humans sometimes make decisions differently certain time of the day, certain days. So we might have differing opinion maybe a few years down the road as well. If, let's say, family members find it difficult to talk about it openly, you can read up more about advanced care planning and preferred place of care so that you can talk about it more controlled environment and a safer environment as well for everybody.
0: It's often said that healthcare workers in the end-of-life sector face the risk of compassion fatigue. How do you balance the emotional demands of palliative care with the need to be consistent in your compassionate care?
3: We do face a risk of compassion fatigue because we deal with emotions every day. Basically, yeah, it's okay for you to cry with the patient and be emotionally attached at that period of time you are talking to them. But you should not be crying more than the patient or the family members. And also learning how to detach ourselves from the emotion after work. We advise a lot on self-care for the family members because we understand that taking care of someone who is at the end of life is difficult as well. For myself, I would definitely want to finish work as soon as I can and then go home immediately and then see and spend time with my children. I think having them around has been my source of joy and they have been helping me to ease the burden of work, especially emotionally as well.
0: Audrey, can you share your advice about being kind to yourself and others?
3: So the only advice I have would be to be more compassionate and understanding towards one another. Everybody have their challenges in life. Some days might be good for them, some days are bad. And it's always good to just slow down and help out wherever we can. There's this saying, it takes a village to raise a child. So I think it's a good ideology to live by because we don't live in this society alone. We need our community and our society as well to help us grow and nurture in one way or another. Sometimes for me, greeting my cleaners, porters, or anyone working in the organisation by saying a simple hello or good morning, we might not know that it might make their day and also make, might make their, them feel better as well.
1: Thank you, Audrey, for the wonderful advice. Demonstrating compassion reflects empathy, understanding and genuine concern about the well-being of others. This holds true. For healthcare professionals, caregivers and individuals alike, embodying compassion allows us to foster meaningful relationships built on mutual respect and emotional connection.
0: We met Grace Sim, an occupational therapist at Dover Park Hospice, in our episode on dignity. One way she shows compassion to a patient is through the practice of namaste care and the concept of compassionate presence.
4: Namaste Care is a program created by a social worker by the name of Joyce Simard. And she first created this for patients with dementia in the nursing homes. And mainly it's to engage them through their senses. Rather than just let them lie in bed and look at the ceiling, she do this program to make them feel engaged again. So the basic three principle is a calming environment, soothing sensory engagement, so we might put on some lights that we can shine on the ceiling, shine on the wall. We use aromatherapy for smell. We use music for hearing stimulation. Uh, We do massage for human touch. And at the end of the session, if patient's still awake, then we will offer some drinks or food if the patient can still eat. Anybody can do namaste care, just bearing in mind these three principles. I have this patient who has very strong death anxiety. He is calling out every two, three minutes. He will press the call bell and and when nurses come to his bedside, he said, please sit with me. And then I tried Namaste for him and it's so powerful. Just that 15 minutes of the soft music that he likes, the aromatherapy, that touch, and he fell asleep. And I always tell people the most rewarding thing for a namaste session is when your patient snores. Because when they are in pain, they cannot sleep. When they are so breathless, they cannot rest. They are so anxious, they don't dare even to close their eyes. But after your namaste session, if you hear your patient snoring, you know that you have achieved your objective. Using namaste, being there with your presence, giving the assurance with your touch, it is so powerful. Our final guest has faced
0: three recurrences of breast cancer, with the latest diagnosis being terminal. Despite enduring many challenges throughout the years, she's learned to be compassionate
5: towards herself, using this kindness to lift her spirits through her journey. Hello, my name is Wai Ling. I'm 43 years old this year. I've been running a translation and copywriting business with my husband for the past 20 years. The first time I was diagnosed, I was only 36 years old. So that was stage 2 breast cancer. It was very early stage. I went for a lumpectomy, followed by chemotherapy, and after that I was told that I was cleared of my cancer. But unfortunately, three years later, it relapsed in the axilla region. So I cleared cleared out my cancer after another surgery and subsequently I went for radiotherapy. Unfortunately again, three years later, which was last year, it relapsed. The cancer had spread to my lungs, my bones and my liver. With the new drug that I was given, it's called NHER2, it really brought my cancer under control. The cancer activities in my body have declined quite a bit. And my cancer markers have been falling, so that's really good news. While I know that the cancer is not going to go away, after all it's terminal cancer, I have also learned not to worry too much about the future because we never know what the future brings. Instead, I have learned to be more appreciative of what I already have and to live life in the moment because after all, it's the present moment that is most important. Sometimes we are so hung up over the outcomes, we are trying to have control over everything that we miss the joy of the journey. And I realised that sometimes the more we try to control the outcome, the more the outcome will turn out different from what we expected. Instead of wanting things to turn out your way 100% of the time, which is not possible, I have learned to just go with the flow and to just appreciate the magic and possibilities that unfold with each passing moment is part and parcel of enjoying the journey instead of just looking towards the destination. How have the discussions with family and friends regarding your health and well being evolved over time? Is there anything you're doing differently now? They have definitely been there for me. My husband has been taking care of my everyday needs and some of my family and friends were really supportive. They gave me the emotional support that I needed during this tough time. If we pay attention to our negative feelings, we might just be able to give ourselves the time and the space to heal from these emotional wounds and to move on from there. And I find that this is something which I have failed to do after I was diagnosed for the first and second time. But for the third time, I've adopted a totally different perspective. So instead of telling myself to be strong, to be positive all the time, I have learned to allow myself space to express my vulnerability. Vulnerability doesn't make you weak, it just makes you human. I would say I didn't get shut down Because in the first place The older generation Didn't even talk to me About this concept So how can I get shut down When they don't even Talk to me about it So you're right In the sense that It's an Asian mentality Many people They tend to Walk on eggshells When they are around me They are afraid that They might say The wrong things And they are afraid That they might upset me Or offend me But truth be told I don't really mind In fact I would very much prefer if they were upfront with me And if they could just honestly and openly discuss with me How I'm feeling and how I'm working through my journey The thing is we can't turn back the clock We can't rewrite our history So there's no point dwelling on the past And dwelling on how things could have been So I think it's more emotionally healthy for all of us If we could just move on from here and to just accept life as it is at the present moment and to just make the best of what we have and above all, I think just tell ourselves that everything happens for a reason and perhaps it's for the best. So I'm definitely appreciative of the love and support offered by some of my friends and family. It has been a very emotionally challenging journey and I'm really glad that some of them have really come forward to offer me support and encouragement when I needed it most. Whileing, how do you show compassion and kindness to yourself for Cancer patients who have to deal with the fiscally demanding challenges of chemotherapy and other cancer treatments, it's simply not possible for us to be positive, cheerful. And optimistic all the time I think sometimes we just have to accept that Both positive and negative emotions are part and parcel of life When I'm feeling negative Instead of beating myself up over why I'm feeling negative I just allow myself to go with the flow And to even embrace such negative emotions I mean, to me, there's nothing wrong with it Because these negative emotions They might unveil certain emotional wounds That we have not Attended to, and if we were to pay attention to it, we might be able to work through the emotional healing, and we would be able to move on from there with a renewed perspective. Sometimes coming to terms with negative emotions can be a good thing, especially for cancer patients because it's not just a time of physical healing, it's a time of emotional healing as well. I think it's a good chance for us to really come back to our own emotions and to really be kind to Ourselves, because if you are not kind to yourself, if you don't treat yourself in the best way possible, then who will? Can you share an instance where you felt the kindness and compassion from your palliative care team and others? I definitely have to mention Ambulance Wish Singapore. Back then when I shared with my counsellor that there are certain wishes that I have yet to fulfil and I wouldn't want to just pass away with these unfulfilled wishes and with these regrets, she immediately linked me up with Ambulance Wish Singapore. They helped me organise an outing for my dog. Basically, long story short, I just didn't want to live with the regret of knowing that I couldn't really give my dog the best. And I just wanted to take him out for a fun excursion, which was something that I failed to do for my previous dog. That sense of guilt had been haunting me for the longest time. I'm very thankful to the volunteers from Ambulance Bridge Singapore for organising that excursion for my current dog and for my family so we could take him out and enjoy the day to the fullest. And it enabled me to gain closure with my previous dog. And it also fulfilled my wish of knowing that, okay, at least I have tried to give my dog the best, notwithstanding my present circumstances. Yeah, I'm definitely very grateful for their kindness. What forms of self-care are you currently practising? definitely reading and writing. I can just write for the pleasure of it. I can just write to express my passion and my love. It's definitely fulfilling and satisfying. That's actually a very important part of self-care for me. It's part and parcel of being kind to myself. Do you have any advice to share about being kind to yourself and others? cancer isn't necessarily a bad thing because it can be a reminder that you haven't been kind enough to yourself that you have been too harsh on yourself that you have been putting other people's needs in front of your own This is the best time for us to take a step back, take a breather and really learn to be kind to ourselves. It's part and parcel of our emotional healing and at the end of it all, we will emerge as a healthier and a more wholesome person. Many things in life are beyond our control. So instead of beating yourself up because you can't take something off your to-do list, it's definitely more useful to learn to go with the flow and accept what life brings to you because there can be plenty of beauty and possibilities in each moment. Being diagnosed with terminal breast cancer at the age of 43 made me feel that I got cut short in my prime because That's the point in my life when I feel that I really should be enjoying the fruits of my labour. But yet here I am having to deal with terminal breast cancer. I just have to learn to bring forward some of my retirement plans. I've always wanted to travel the world I've always been captivated by the Aurora Borealis I've always wanted to see it for myself one day I've always wanted to publish my own book So I just have to bring forward my retirement plans And just to live life in the moment And to do what I enjoy Instead of dwelling on the past Or fretting over the future
1: Having compassion is a cornerstone of palliative care, and our four guests have shown how it can be a source of comforting encouragement to those in end-of-life situations. Being kind to oneself is not a weakness, it is a strength. The ability to express compassion is critical to alleviating the mental and emotional burden that is borne by both patients and their caregivers, be they nurses or family members.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Live Well, Leave Well podcast from the Singapore Hospice Council. Do subscribe to our podcast on your podcast app so you'll be notified when we have a new episode on the second Friday of each month. Do share this podcast with someone who you think will appreciate knowing more about our work in palliative care. You can learn more at our website, singaporehospice.org.sg.